My name is Liesl Ann, to those of you that don't know me yet, and I have the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning. Over the last long while, if you've been with us at all, you would remember that we are delving in and navigating our way as a church through the book of James. James, I just want to remind us and give us a little bit of history, is a half-brother of Jesus, in case you didn't know that. So he walked alongside Jesus all throughout his life. And now he heads up a significant church community, being one of the leading church leaders at the time that he writes this book to us. The context of his audience was a people in the midst of a terrible famine. They were facing great persecution, and the society that they lived in was pretty messed up, a little bit like ours, I would say. So this book is his book of wisdom to his people, and he seeks to encourage them and urge them on. Um, He's speaking to the ones that he holds dear, so it's a very personal book. It's been compared and likened to the books of Proverbs because it is written in short, punchy sentences. You would often find on a Sunday as we read it that it feels like you're being hit in the gut a few times with the truths of James. So these chapters are the culmination of James's life, what he's found to be true through his ministry and over the years, and it's so helpful for us because he aims to encourage and direct his followers, and he points to the goal of living a righteous life. He tells us how to navigate the living and how to work out our calling by God. Last Sunday, Arno went through and we started chapter 4. And we looked at the troubled waters, I've called it the troubled waters that rages in and around us as we battle with the world and with our friendship with the world and the battles within us. I don't know about you, but I was deeply moved last week. And I was devastated as I recognized and acknowledged the the reality of my wandering heart and the grievous hurt that it causes my father. I was so happy to have that little end bit about God's grace. So that kind of got us through. But this week is another cracker. I'm afraid um, we have to get a little bit dirty again. (laughs) And we delve in the deep, muddy water. Um, It gets a little bit dirty. We have to do that again before we can climb onto the bridge of God's amazing, steady, and sturdy love for us. As we look to the gospel, we understand what Christ has done and we can grab hold of him who is our bridge. So I'm trusting that as you leave the building this morning, that your hearts would be filled with hope. As we look to Christ and as we are emboldened and strengthened by his spirit and hopefully more compelled to start afresh in our walk of faith. So there is good news today. Won't you turn with me to James 4, verse 7 to 10. Let's go. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy 
to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So this morning, I'm hoping to show us why we need to acknowledge our need to submit to God, to acknowledge the existence and plans of the devil and his aim to deceive us and draw us away from Christ, but also then to remember the promise that we, when we resist, that that God promises that he will flee from us. We need to acknowledge our identity and our security in Christ and his steadfast, faithful love and act in a way that we draw near to him, but remembering the promise that he will draw near to us. We need to acknowledge the devastation of our sin and bow down to the reality of our desperate need to act in wholehearted repentance as we look to the reality of how this works out in our lives. And then we can humbly come before God and accept his incredible grace as he promises to exalt and lift us up. It's a beautiful piece of scripture, and I am so excited to share it with you. It mirrors the gospel so well. So, step one, we need to acknowledge that we need to submit to God. Verse seven says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The definition of submission is the action of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. And as you think about this definition, I'm sure you can remember when you first come to Christ, we all have to acknowledge and bow to his authority. We realize that there's something missing in our lives and that we need Jesus. So we accept and then we learn to yield to him. We understand that we can no longer go our own way and that we need a savior. And then we undertake to follow God's way and walk in the example set by Christ. We surrender our will to the will of our fathers. It's a profound thing, really. It flies in the face of society today because society tells us, Young people, are you listening? Society tells you that you are the master of your own destiny. That you can have anything you want, when you want, how you want. You've just, if you dream it, you can be it. We heard that. And these are the actions that get us into trouble. Jane Wilkins states that, Delight yourself in lawlessness, and your disordered desires will govern you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you new desires. You see, when we turn our eyes to Jesus and allow him to transform us, our desires change, and that's the truth of the gospel. We all know the beautiful song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his wonder and grace. The things of the earth will grow strangely dim. You see, we hold on to those things of the earth. The submission to God means that, that we understand that God wants all of us, not just the little neat box that we put him in. My prayer for us this morning is that we would recognize again and see who God is again. For some of you, and I really, really feel a conviction this morning, that there's some of you that are going to see him for the first time. And for others, it might well be to see him through a different lens. I'm praying a cleaner, fresher lens. So, Lord, may we all see you this morning. And may we recognize and realize our desperate need for God. And then may we all be willing to recommit 
our ways to God, his kingdom, and his ruling over us. Let us pray. Lord, would you change our hearts this morning, our desires and our wants, to your perfect will and way. Again, we pray. May our hearts return to you and you alone. May you, O God, be rightfully replaced at the center of our lives. Would you open our hearts to come back to you, God, wholeheartedly, fully, and in absolute surrender to your call. Help us look to you, Jesus, and to readily bow the knee in full surrender. Amen. The songs this morning, which are so beautiful and so apt about just giving our lives back to you and God being our everything. So this is what the first step is, submitting to God again. Step one, tick, done. Next one, acknowledge that there is a devil and that we must resist him. Verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I found a book written by John Mark Comer, very, very... um, interesting and and as a good resource in this instance. And it's entitled Live No Lies, if ever you want to look it up. It's a great resource. I would put it to us this morning that most of us don't give the devil much acknowledgement. We think of him as being the little guy with the red suit and the little horns that tempts us. But our being, we need to be aware of the nature, the attacking nature he has over our lives and that he actually wants to do everything he can to help us give up our faith and our belief in our creator. It's what he's out to do. He is a real threat and we must be aware of the danger of his attempts to have us move away from God, away from community and to doubt his goodness and then question his ways. If we remember the story of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, it can give us a few good insights as to how the devil likes to work. First, he got Eve alone. She was away from God and away from Adam at the time that he tempted her. And the only voice she heard was his. There was nothing to counterpoint the truth she was hearing. And then he lied. He planted doubts in her mind about God's wisdom and good intentions, lies that played to her disordered desires. Her disordered desires are the things that she thought she wanted, self-gratification, pleasure, autonomy. Sound familiar? So alone and exposed to lies, she was easy prey. Satan is very intelligent and sophisticated, and um, he's crafty, the word says in Genesis. But his tactic is the same basic formula on repeat, even today. Isolate and then lie. He will pick a lie that plays to your disordered desires. Something like autonomy. He will give you a relationship. He will make you take a relationship step away from God. Why must I come to church on a Sunday, you may ask? I need rest. I work every day. Surely I can't lie in on the one day of the week. Why must I give to God? He knows I can't come out on my salary. Why must I align my my life to God's way? I know better. Why must I obey God's commands? They were written so long ago. Surely they don't have reference today. We then, through the help of the little red man, start to redefine good and evil for ourselves. And just like that, he has succeeded. 
In our digital age, we make his job even easier. Hurry, pathological busyness, distraction, smartphone addiction, the constant stream of alerts and interruptions, they all cut us off from the community and feed our inordinate desire for autonomy. John Mark Comer. We are easy pickings in the society that we live in. Are you always hurrying? Are you always too busy? Are you distracted, always on your phone, always glancing down at your notifications? Look up, Christ follower. Look up. James says, resist the devil. So for us, we must be aware of that he exists, first of all, and be aware that he is going to great lengths to get us alone, to lie to us, and to cause us to walk away from the community and from God. That's his aim, and he's ruthless. We need to know what the word says, what is and who is God, because the world is fighting hard to melt our hearts into mediocrity, to, burn, to blur the lines and to water us down. We, at the end of the day, we don't look any different from the world around us. Romans 12 verse 2 encourages us by saying, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. We must, friends, know what God is saying in his word. More than ever before, we need to know his ways over the world's ways. I think the stats on biblical illiteracy is very scary. I didn't actually look them up, but I know that it's crazy that most Christians don't read their Bible. We need to be in God's word. We need his wisdom, and we need to know God's truth in a world that is trying to tell us and fighting for its truth over our lives. We need God's will to be so indebted in us that it's so easy to act out in word and deed as we live it out every day. We need to breathe it in. Last week, we heard of this fight going on, the fight with the world and our desires within us. It's like a war. So, as any good soldier would, we need to be vigilant. We must be watchful. We must surround ourselves with good community, ones who will help mold us, shape us, and keep us accountable in our spiritual walk. Life group, church community, friends who are believers who pray for us, with us, and hold us accountable. Then we can be wise. However, all is not lost. We are not left alone. The end bit of the verse is what we can hold on to. It's the thing that can cause us to resist. It's the promise of God. You see, he says, if we resist, then he will flee from you. That's not he might flee from you. Maybe you'll flee. he will flee from you. And this is the key. It gives us great comfort to know that, yes, we can own our own sin. We need to. We must repent. And Jesus said so often to those that he... Um, that he performed miracles on. He said, sin no more. So we need to sin no more, and then God will cause Satan to flee from you. Hebrews 4 verse 15 to 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, so that we may obtain mercy 
and find grace in our time of need. So this promise assures us that there is nothing we cannot overcome. When we are fighting sin, when we habitually fall back into it, when we feel discouraged and desperate, when we remember we just need to come boldly to the throne of grace, God is merciful and he's full of grace towards us and he will cause Satan to flee from us. We trust in the one who does not lie. He will cause us to overcome, and we can rest in his beautiful nature and his love. He will see us through. Jesus is our high priest who sympathizes and intercedes for us. We do our bit and then allow God to do the rest. And often it's not in our timing. I'm sure that when you're sitting here maybe feeling really hopeless about your constant sin in a certain area, um, but then you think back over your life and you can see times where, oh wow, I think I've overcome that. Like you don't even realize it because it's in the trusting, it's in the obeying, it's in the releasing, it's in the trying again and praying. And one day you wake up and notice, wow, that obsession, that temptation, those thought patterns, poof, gone. That's our God. He is faithful to see us finish our race, um, but let's start by being ever aware of Satan's tricks to derail us and to keep us from God. Step three, drawing near to God. Verse eight says, come near to God and he will come near to you. We overcome the evil one in his schemes by drawing near to God. I'm reminded of the beautiful story of the prodigal son. The story of the wayward son, who we see so much of ourselves in, who selfishly took all he could, with no regard to his cost and his, to his family and his father. He wanted what he wanted, when he wanted it, and he took it and he left them. He didn't think about how they were going to survive after. He took it, his inheritance. He was completely self-absorbed and selfish, not caring about anyone else except himself. He parties it up goes to Joburg, has a ball, spends all his money, lives the high life, and then soon it's all gone. And so are his fickle friends that were hanging around for the free drink as well. He crawls back to his father, and he doesn't expect much. He thinks to himself, I just need a roof over my head, and I'm willing to be a servant in my father's house. He never expected anything more. And what does his father do? His father, when he sees him coming, watches him from afar, sees him approaching, he prepares this huge feast. He brings out his absolute finest coat. He comes with the family ring, and he runs to his son, fully embracing him, taking back his own lost son. My son was lost, but now is found. That is the picture of our God. That is who he is. He can, we can run back to him, and he promises to embrace us, to draw us back in, to clothe us in his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. And he calls us sons and daughters, fully accepted, fully adopted, his always. Oh, what a savior. Oh, what a father. Oh, what a friend. So, okay, we get that, but how do we practically draw near to God? One. We need to be in his word. Psalm 
1.2, 1 verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on his law day and night. Pray, pray, pray. Pray against temptation. Pray for protection. Pray for courage. Pray for strength and wisdom. Pray for God to lead you, to guide you, to direct your paths. Prayer brings us closer to his heart. That's how we communicate with him. Psalm 145 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So the first half that we've spoken about tells us how we can draw near to God. But the second half, the best half, the best is always left for last, is what we hold on to. It says, God will draw near to you. He will never push you away. He comes towards us and he holds us near through his word, he enlightens us and teaches us through answered and heard prayers. Just as, as a parent, when your child comes to you, having done something terrible, and they come to you heartbroken, and they're really sorry, we want them to be really sorry. They're really sorry for what they've done. Do we turn them away? No. So much more. How much more does our loving father not come towards us, turning his face towards us, drawing us near. He is a good, good father. Step four, we are to repent and mourn over our sin. Verses eight to nine continues, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify you, your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Have you ever wailed? Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. So on one side, we have this beautiful reminder of God's forgiveness and acceptance. But then on the other side, James reminds us of the severity of our sin. And again, he reminds us how devastating it is. Can I ask, when last did you weep over your sin? It's a startling question because when I thought about it, I thought, sure. You know, I know there's been times when I've felt devastated by my sin, but I don't think I've ever wailed and wept or mourned seriously about it. Last week, we were reminded that our sin is like spiritual adultery. As we give the love we promise to God to another thing, we are in a covenantal relationship with God. It's a marriage of sorts, and God owns our hearts, and he's jealous over us. He longs for us to find our complete satisfaction in him and him alone. We need to be secure in him. That's what he wants. He wants us to feel like he is our everything. And our sin problem is that our inner struggle within us because we have other lovers. And this grieves God's heart. You see, when I choose to have my will, my way, do what I want, I stand as an enemy against the purposes of God. I'm in rebellion to him. God is eternally faithful, eternally glorious, and eternally for us, and his love is rightfully jealous. We all want a fundamentally exclusive love. I'm sure husbands and wives, you don't want your wife or husband to have other lovers. God loves us with such a pure and faithful love that there's no way he can love us and tolerate our fickle, selfish, wandering hearts. Our hearts should be wretched apart by our sinfulness. Weep 
and mourn. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Hard words. You see, we are far too casual, far too easily satisfied. We have lost the sense of the ugliness and damage of our sin. We need to stop being too scared to look our sin in the face and not be moved. Paul Tripp. We should be devastated by this, and I'm hoping that this morning that there'll be a real shift in our hearts as we grasp the stunning glory of Christ's gifts to us on one hand and the opposite reality of our disloyalty, of sin, our disloyalty and sin. It's just devastating. But in true gospel fashion, there is hope. As we look to the action bit of these verses, we can do something, and God meets us more than halfway. That's the way he works. He gives us a bridge that we can climb onto and walk over. God gives us a way out. And James tells us to wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And it's this beautiful picture of repentance. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance that leads to life as repentance leading to life is a saving grace by which a sinner, having truly realized his sin, and grasp the mercy of God in Christ, turns from his sin with grief and hatred and turns towards God with full resolve and effort after new obedience. We come back to the one who has won our hearts. We can get washed anew by the blood of Christ. We can seek to purify our hearts with the Holy Spirit as our guide. He can stop We can stop being tossed about by every wave of disappointment and loss and stand steady and secure on the rock of God and his promises. We can turn from our sin and turn towards God, resolving to try again in full obedience. And we can do it because Christ is in us. He fulfills all he has promised. He is forever faithful despite our faithlessness. And he turns to us in return. Hebrews 10 verse 23 reminds us to let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And then we can, step five, in humbleness, accept and remember God's forgiveness. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 7, says it so beautifully. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I praise God for the beautiful hope of the gospel, that we have a God who is merciful. His love is bigger, wider, and deeper than we can ever imagine. He loves us in a way we can never even understand or comprehend, a love so unlike us. It's perfect, it's complete, it's whole. That whilst we were dead to our sins, he has saved us 
and made us alive in Christ and seated us with them in heavenly places so that we have an eternal hope and assurance. The truth of the gospel is that God welcomes the weak, the lowly, the poor, the needy, the fallen. So if you're feeling weak and lowly this morning, if you are feeling alone and bereft and worthless and desperate, you can come in honesty and humility and with a contrite heart. It just means a heart that's willing, accepting the forgiveness you have in Christ and leaving it at the cross. And God then promises that he will lift you up. Oh, how we need that. So, come. His promise is this in verse 10. He says, come to me. This morning, would you come? Come with your spiritual wavering. Come with your distraction. Come with your broken relationships, your marriage, your children, your disappointments, your hurts. Come with your broken heart, filled with grief. Come with your broken dreams. Come with all your tomorrows. Come. Come as we remember our desperate need for our Savior. Come near. Come and hear. He is here. He will forgive you, and he will forgive me, and empower and deliver us from ourselves, our sin, our way, waywardness, and he will draw near to us, and he will lift us up. So let us come before his throne of grace today. Come. As we think and as we surrender our lives, and I'm thinking that as in this next moment as the worship team comes up, and as we maybe get our cup and bread, we would just think about who God is. How do we submit to him again this morning? How do we come before him and ask him to wash us anew? How do we ask him to forgive our sin? Let's recommit our lives. Let's ask him to do great things in us and through us and for his glory again. So as we listen, we'll grab the cup and the wine, and then we'll end off with um, the Lord's Supper. But uh, let's just have a moment of quietness before God, pondering, thinking, asking for him to be present with us.